Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. And then we are going to go to Genesis chapter 33, and we're going to read the 8th and ninth verses there. Hebrews 12, 16 and 17. While you're finding it, let me say how pleased I am that Brother Green has come to visit with us tonight. And all of our other visitors, we're so glad that you're here. And it's a privilege for Sister Jones and I to be with you for this uh, short uh, time, preach and worship the Lord with you. Hebrews 12, 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. What a vivid picture of Esau weeping and seeking for repentance and not being able to find it. What a contrast that is to Genesis chapter 33 verses 8 and 9. And if you'll allow me, I will substitute the proper names for the pronouns in verse 8 so that you'll understand without a lot of explanation who is speaking here. And Esau said, What meanest thou by all this drove which I met? And Jacob said, These are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. And Esau said, I... Have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. From these two passages of Scripture, I want to preach on this topic, learning to live without God. Learning to live without God. Pastor, would you pray for us tonight that the Lord would speak in this service? Yes, granted, Jesus. Give us the bread of life tonight. Praise God. For we perish with men's bread. Give us children's bread. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Living water. Anoint your servant to minister to us. Stir our hearts and save souls tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. You may be seated. At the very outset tonight, I want to take a moment or two and clarify something that I want you to hold in your mind and understand before I go on in this sermon. I don't want to be misunderstood. I want to say at the very beginning that I sincerely believe that only the Holy Ghost can satisfy the hunger in the hearts of mankind. I believe that we were made, we were constructed with a heart that has an emptiness. There is a longing, a searching, a, a sense of need that resides in the heart of everybody. And I don't believe 
There is one person here tonight, young person, middle-aged, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. There's not one person here tonight that does not have this sense of need. You were born with it. It has been a dominant force in your life all of your days. You will never escape this sense of, of need, this sense of desire, this hunger, this longing, unless you have been filled up with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Only the Holy Ghost can satisfy you. And I'm telling you, unless you keep it real and living and vibrant in your life, that hunger will once again come and take control of your life. The reason there's so much alcoholism. Do you know that there are 1.7 million alcoholics and problem drinkers beneath the ages of 16 in the United States of America? Do you know that alcoholism is a problem all the way down to the ages of 8, 9, and 10 years old? Drug abuse is in epidemic proportions. Immorality has, has, has knows no bounds in our world today. We live in a sick society and I'm going to tell you what the problem is. Uh, men are hungry. They're longing. They're searching. They're looking for something to satisfy the hunger in their hearts. Uh, and you'll never do it uh, until you found the Lord Jesus uh, in the power of the Holy Ghost. Uh, I want you to know that I don't believe you really know what living's all about until you've been filled with the Holy Ghost. You are not alive. You're not really living until you're living for God. I believe that. This is where it's at. It's not out there in the world. That's an empty, hollow, false existence. The devil promises so much and he delivers so little. He promises good things and he gives bad things. He promises you a good time. He promises you a lot of friends and he promises you a lot of fun and he brings nothing but heartbreak and sorrow and disappointment. But Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly you're not living until you're living for God you know brother James Kilgore said one time uh, in response to a, a, a statement I'd made he said brother Jones if you can find the answer I'd like to hear it I wish I could he said we've done everything we can for our young people we, we've got a Christian school we have we have we have singing we have, we have a, a, an outreach. We have a, a, like a carpenter shop on that, on that fashion, a little uh, a youth meeting area. And so we've got everything you can imagine. And he said they still are backsliding. They're still losing out with God. He said, I'm not having a problem with the kids that come in here out of the world. The potheads and the, and the drinkers and, and the immoral kids that come off the streets. He said they're in love with the Lord. And they're going on for God. He said, but we can't hold those raised uh, on Pentecostal pews. It's as if they have listened when the devil promised them there was more out there than there was in here. Well, friend, if the devil has told you that, I'm here to tell you he's a liar. I'm here to tell you it's not out there. Now, I've never been drunk. 
I've never been high on any kind of drug. I can't really tell you myself that what's out there has no comparison to what's in here, but I can tell you that I've met a lot of people that's found the Lord. I've seen a lot of young people come to God, and I'm here to tell you that I haven't seen a one that's done it all, and I've met many that's been down every avenue, and they've tried every thrill. They've been everywhere there is to go, but I've never met a one of them yet after they found the Lord that didn't say this is what I've been looking for. This is better than anything I've ever found out there. Let me tell you something. I don't believe when we come to the end of the day that we'll ever regret living for God. I've never met one Holy Ghost filled older person that ever said I wish I had waited until I was older to bring myself to God. But I have found a many one that were older before they found the Lord that stood and said I wish I would have found him when I was a young person. I wish I'd have come to God when I was still young. What I'm saying is this only the Holy Ghost is going to bring you a life that's worth living. Only the Holy Ghost can satisfy you. Anything else is a lie. It's a lie. But I must be honest with you tonight and tell you that even though only God and the Holy Ghost and living for God can bring, can bring uh, this sense of fulfillment into people's lives, there are those that have learned to cope with life without God. I think that I have been in some points of my ministry a little dishonest. And I have made an effort to change that. I have made statements that I think I might have meant it right, but it didn't sound right. When I would say, you know, people backslide and they never are satisfied. They're never really happy. But you know, I've met a few and I know of a few others that somehow seem to find happiness outside the church. And I want to be very honest with you when I tell you it is absolutely possible to learn to make it without God. Man has something in him that adapts to whatever situation or condition he finds himself in. In, 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 the, in the world, the physical world, look at, at, at mankind's conquering of his environment we we speed through the skies in airplanes we dive to the depths of the sea in in submarines and other vessels of the deep we scale the highest mountains we dwell in the driest deserts there are even tonight uh, scientific stations established in the frigid north and the frozen south of the Arctic and the Antarctic why, men have even went to the moon and lived there for days on end. There are now plans made by the Soviet Union to, to establish a satellite, uh, an artificial moon, if you will, a space station in orbit around our earth where men and women will go and live for months on end. The plans are, of course, we would know if the Lord tarries 
They don't think of it that way, but the long-range plans are that there will be colonies established in outer space in the absolute zero, in the, in the absolute absence of not only temperature, but atmosphere and gravity. There will be colonies where men and women will live their lives. Uh, they will marry and bear children in the depths of outer space uh, and on the surface of the moon and in other planets. Man has learned to live in whatever circumstance uh, he can reach, wherever he can go, he has learned to establish himself. It might be a li living, a livelihood foreign to any concept of living that you and I have. It would be better to say man has learned to exist in almost any circumstance. He has learned to cope with almost any disadvantage of the physical realm. We have that ability. Do you know there are people also that have learned to cope with almost any emotional state. It's an amazing study, if you've ever done much of it, uh, of the, the psychology of the prisoner. Especially in, in like prisoner of war camps uh, in areas in World War II and Korea and Vietnam when men were tortured with sophisticated methods of torture. And yet there have been men who lived months and even years in the most degradating circumstances, eating the filthiest of food, living like animals under the worst of psychological pressure. And yet when the cages were opened, they walked out of there and they had been able to cope. There are men and women that have gone through hostage crises where they live for literally years with every moment of their life it seems would be the last and yet when their ordeal was over they were able to return and pick up the pieces of their lives and go on without any strong uh, lasting damage what I'm saying is even in the emotional realm man has the resonance to cope with whatever circumstance he finds himself in done a lot of reading about this and it seems to me that one of the most uh, one of the most necessary ingredients is that people prisoners of war under tremendous psychological stress learn to block certain things out of their minds. They learn to simply shut down fear, for example. They they develop a sense of of almost uh, acceptance to what ever happens uh, without fear at all. They learn to shut down their homesickness. They learn to shut down regrets and guilts. And they learn to simply exist uh, in the moment. I'm here to tell you that man also has the ability, young people, women, every person on this earth has the ability to learn to live without God. I'm telling you, I don't understand how they do it. I've stood beside too many open graves of too many loved ones and felt the comfort 
healing hand of the Holy Ghost too many times in order to understand how men and women walk to that cemetery and lay a loved one to rest and do it without the presence of God. I've been in too many hospital rooms and watched the saints of the Lord suffer and realized God was holding them up and giving them hope. I still don't understand how you do it without God. I've seen too many times of depression and despair come in my own life that when I had nowhere else to go, I got down on my knees and I felt his hand in mine. I heard him say, I'm with you. Don't you worry. And I've seen his deliverance for me to ever understand how you go through life without God. But I wouldn't be preaching you the truth tonight if I didn't tell you that men do it every day. They even learn how to block out certain things to help them cope. There are people tonight that will never walk in the door of that church that used to shout the victory right here. You know why? They have learned to live without God. They've learned to block out conviction. They've learned to block out guilt. They've learned to block out what you may think of them. And they have simply lost themselves in the everyday routines of life. And if you go and meet them and sit in their living rooms and talk to them, it will seem as if they're contented. It will seem as if they're not worried about tomorrow. If you talk about eternity, they'll almost ridicule you. Because there's something that has transformed their thinking. Somehow they have learned to live without God. I want you to understand tonight, it's entirely possible. I will never forget sitting in a pastor's living room. I will never forget how I felt as I began to talk with his married daughter. As we talked, uh, I knew the story. I was familiar with it. She had, as a teenage girl, 18, 19 years old, she had begun to be attracted to a sinner boy. He was coming to church. He was sitting on the pews. He would go to the altar, but he never got the Holy Ghost. Her dad warned her, you don't need to even think about marriage until he gets the Holy Ghost, until he proves himself that he loves the Lord. But for her, it was enough that he was coming to church and going to the altar, and they married. They had no sooner got back from the honeymoon when he announced that he would never go back to church. He didn't believe in all of that anyway. He wasn't interested in the Holy Ghost, and he didn't want her going back either. You know what she did? She backslid. She gave up on God. She tried for a little while, but he made it tough on her, and so she quit going to church and told her dad, I'll never come back until my husband comes. I can't live for God unless he does, and so there's no use to try as we sat there in the living room that day I began to question her about her her decision not to live for the Lord she'd been out of the church for several years and as I talked to her I asked her I wanted to bring her to that point to where she would tell me those very words and she did she said brother Jones I made up my mind I would never go to church I would never pray back through until my husband made a move it just wouldn't make any difference and I said well I want to ask you a question 
I said, what are you going to do if your husband never prays? And this Pentecostal girl, a preacher's kid, if you will, raised here in the Pentecostal preaching, feeling Pentecostal power, looked me in the eye and with a flippant, unmoved, untearful attitude said, well, I guess I'll just go to hell. Let me tell you something. The most dangerous thing in the world is that you might one day learn how to live without God. It may not bother you anymore. It may not touch you anymore. You might grow so cold and so hardened that you learn how to make it without feeling your need of him. I'm not just preaching to backsliders and those that are totally out of the church tonight. I'm preaching to every one of us here. We are none of us made it yet. You quit your praying. You quit your Bible reading. You grow unfaithful to the house of God. You don't worship the Lord when it's time to worship Him. And you are in danger of learning how to do it without God. You make the decisions of life without prayer. You don't turn your heart and your life over to God. And you're making it without Him. It's a fatal mistake because one day you might learn how to do it without God. No more guilt. No more conviction. You know what? The symptoms are very, are very plain. It takes tougher and tougher preaching. It takes, it takes certain approaches. The stories have to be just gory enough. The altar song has to be just sweet and soft enough. It just has to be such a move of God before you'll ever move. Don't you realize what has happened? You have grown accustomed to the presence of the Lord. You have grown accustomed to the pull of the Word of God. You're no longer sensitive, but you've grown calloused and you've grown hardened. One of these days, the danger is that you will grow so calloused and so hardened that no sermon will reach you. No evangelist can touch you. No sweet song can move your heart. There's not enough of a move of God that can reach you. What I'm saying is, it's possible that you'll learn to make it without God. And that would be the greatest tragedy of your life. Look at Esau here. We need to think about Esau for a moment. Pentecostal young people. He was the firstborn. He was the one who was to receive the inheritance and the birthright. Under the laws of primogenitor in effect that at that day, Jacob the secondborn, although they were twins, and Jacob only followed his brother in birth by a moment or two, Jacob was to receive nothing. And Esau was to receive everything. He had the inside track. He had everything in his hands. He was to be the recipient of all of the birthright of his father. It, it was cattle and, and, and camels and, and, and sheep and, and, and donkeys and land and wealth and riches and servants beyond imagination. But it was more than that. There was mixed up in this birthright 
a spiritual inheritance that nobody on earth could claim. He was to receive the promise through him that through his descendants uh, the Messiah was going to come and his name would be called blessed for all the history of mankind that's what was in the hands of Esau you and I are the recipients of the Pentecostal heritage and it's not just carpeted churches and padded pews and fine edifices I thank God we're not in the pioneer days anymore. I thank God we're not tonight under a brush arbor with 25 people and the crowd outside wanting to throw tomatoes at us and run us out of town. No, you and I, our generation are receiving the best birthright that the church has ever known. We are in line to receive an inheritance that boggles the imagination. Look at what we've got. The name of Jesus. The oneness of God, the power and essentiality of the Holy Ghost, tongue talking, the nine gifts of the Spirit, good Bible teaching, that it puts something in our hearts uh, that so many out there will never have and we were born here we've been on these pews all of our lives nothing we ever did, we were just born here My God, think about it. and it's ours but more than that, you and I are in line to receive the promise that in our generation, the Lord Jesus is going to come back to this world. The generation that the world has been groaning for can be ours. We have that opportunity. There was something wrong with Esau. I'm aware that in another part of the Old Testament, the Lord testifies and says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And there are those who have misinterpreted this to believe in predestination in the sense that no matter what you do, God decides about it. Or He decides you're going to hell and nothing you do can change it, you're going to hell. They have, they, have, they have accepted that about Jacob and Esau, that Esau had no power over his destiny. And Jacob had no choice in the matter. He was going to supplant his brother no matter what he did. I don't believe that for one moment. I'll tell you what I believe the Lord was talking about. I believe that as the Almighty God, He looked into the heart of Jacob before he was ever born. And he looked in the heart of Esau before he ever was born. And he saw what was in their hearts. And he saw that Esau didn't love him. That Esau was not in love with the things of God. And that Jacob loved him with all of his heart. That Jacob desired the things of God more than anything in this world. And he said, I love the spirit that Jacob's got. And I hate the spirit of Esau. Esau had it too good. He didn't have to work for it. All he had to do was just be there. And it came to mean nothing to him. One day coming in from hunting, he found his brother Jacob stirring up a pot of stew. And he said, Jacob, he said, I want you to 
Give me something to eat. I'm starving, slammed to death. And Jacob said, well, he said, it's going to cost you. He said, I've sweated over this big cauldron all day. I've cut up all the vegetables. I dressed the meat. I started the fire. I made this stew. I cooked it. And if you get any of it, you'll have to pay me for it. Esau said, well, what do you want for it? And Jacob said, I want your birthright. I don't know what was in the mind of Jacob. I'm not sure that he thought there was any kind of legal basis for what he was doing. I'm not sure he had any, any idea that his father would honor what was happening right then. But it's a sign of his desperation for the things of God that he would do anything, just about anything, to be blessed of the Lord. To have, the, do you know there are kids out there in that world that would give anything if they could sit where you're sitting tonight and hear what you're hearing and feel what you're feeling. But they don't have that opportunity. But I know what was in the mind of Esau because the Bible tells us. He valued the things of God so little that he made this remark. He said, well, he said, what good would it do me to keep the birthright if I starved to death? He was not that stupid. He knew he wasn't going to starve to death. What he was really saying was this. What good would it keep, do me to keep the birthright if it inconveniences me at all? If I have to go 15 more minutes without something to eat, I value the birthright as less than that. One day my generation's going to have to wake up and realize we're not put here to be entertained. We're not put here to be coddled and babied and our every desire and our every whim to be taken care of. We're not here to be treated like little babies. We're soldiers of the cross. We are called as the generation of the end time. And if we're put out by it, it's worth being put out for. If it costs us, it's worth what it costs. It's not always fun to live for God. It's not always cloud nine and jump over the moon. Oh no, sometimes it's blood and guts and sweat and tears and toil. Sometimes they'll laugh at you. They'll make fun of you. Sometimes it's fasting and on your knees in the middle of the night. But I'm telling you, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. But not to Esau. A growling stomach was too high a price to pay. And so he said, Give me something to eat you can have that old birthright. I don't know how legal that was. I'm pretty well sure that Isaac, their daddy, didn't accept it. Because sometime later, when he thought he was going to die, he didn't send for Jacob. He sent for Esau. He said, go out and kill a deer, dress it, fix me a venison stew, and bring it back and I'll eat it. And then I'm going to transfer the blessing, the birthright to you. Right here in this tent, I'm going to do it. Isaac was old. He was no doubt hard of hearing. I know he couldn't see well. And while Esau was gone, Rebecca heard what Isaac had said that was their mama Rebecca now just as much as Isaac favored Esau Rebecca favored Jacob and she said now son I want you to 
I want you to, we're going to kill a, 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 a ram, a sheep, and I want, we're going to fix it, and that old man won't know the difference between mutton and venison anyway. And I want you to put on some of the, some of the skin with the, with the fleece, the, the, uh, the, uh, the hair, whatever that is, fur, whatever lambs have, and, and, and I want, because Esau's very hairy, and, 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 and you're not. And when you go in there, I want you to tell him you're Esau, and he's going to bless you. And you'll be the recipient of the birthright. I don't know how, but it, they got away with it. They really did. They got away with it. Jacob came in there and Esau, I'm, I'm sorry, Isaac was suspicious. And he said, who are you? And he said, I'm Esau. I'm your son. He said, something's wrong here. He reached out and he felt that fleece on the back of Jacob's neck and down his arms. And he said, well... He said, it's the, it's the hands, it's the arms, it's the neck of Esau, but it's the voice of Jacob. Who are you? Are you Esau? Jacob answered, yes, I am Esau. And Isaac placed his hands on the head of the wrong son. And he transmitted the Pentecostal blessing to the wrong generation. Because those who would have gotten it despised it. They didn't value. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. And you know that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, oh yes, listen, United Pentecostal young people, it would have happened, but, but he valued it so lightly, he despised it till he was rejected. And then suddenly, when he got back and he heard what had happened, it's a sad sight that we find. He didn't value it until it was too late. He didn't value it until he had lost it. He didn't value it until it was gone. And then he stands in the tent of his father and he weeps and cries and says, bless me, even me, oh my father. And there was a blessing, but it wasn't the same. Esau knew he had missed his opportunity. He knew he had missed his chance and he wept and he cried. Big, burly, strong, macho Esau weeping and crying like a baby seeking for repentance but it was too late the Bible says he sought it carefully he was sincere about it he could have rolled back the hours if he could have gone back when there was still time he would have done it I imagine it for days on end Esau was a changed man I imagine for a long time he was upset. He was disturbed when he looked out across the fields and he saw what he lost. And when he thought about the ages to come and the Messiah's promise that could have been his, he wept again and again and again. His heart was broken. He lost it. He lost it. He lost it. And 20 years passed. Esau and Jacob are, about, Jacob are about to meet again. Esau is coming with 400 men to slay his brother. Jacob hears about it. He tries to mollify the anger of Esau by sending out little groups of prize cattle and prize sheep 
and prized camels and donkeys. Little gifts to impress Esau. When they finally meet, none of that helped. It was that, it was that meeting on the other side of the brook where Jacob found power with God. That God touched the heart of Esau. And when they met, instead of the flashing of swords, there was hugging of necks and weeping. And Esau pulled back from hugging his brother Jacob. And he said, What do you mean by sending all of these droves, these, these things, these cattle and so on? And Jacob said, I wanted to find favor with you. Esau bared his soul and tells me something about what had happened in the ensuing years. He looked at Jacob who had the birthright, the thing he had wept for and hungered for and so carefully sought for. He looked at Jacob and said, you keep what you've got. I don't need it. I've got all I Somewhere Esau learned to live without God. He came to terms with a life empty of God's presence. He learned to cope with the fear. He learned to lay down at night and not think about the rapture might happen. If I die, I'd be lost forever. He learned to shut all of that out. And it became second nature. He learned to live without God. I guess, and there's nothing wrong with it because it does happen. I guess, you know, a, a good bloody wreck story of somebody that stomped out of the church, mad at the preacher and mad at God, mad at the church, and goes and gets in his car, speeds off down the road, loses control, it flips over, throws him out and lying in a muddy ditch with the rain drizzling in his face. He looks up toward God and cries out with his last sobbing breath, God, have mercy, but he slips into eternity, having lost out dead under the hand of the judgments of God. I guess those things are all right, but do you know they don't often happen? It's not usually like that. You're not in any great danger tonight that if you walk out of this service, God's going to kill you before you get home, that lightning's going to strike your house in the middle of the night and you'll perish in the fire. There's not much danger of a young person here tonight having a heart attack because of God's anger anger with him no but the danger you're in tonight if you walk out on God is that you'll learn to make it without him you'll go on with living you'll go on with life you'll grow up you'll get out of school you'll get married you'll have kids you'll raise them you'll get a job a good job you'll drive a car live in a nice home you'll go through life and you won't die in an accident you won't die some horrible death but one night in a hospital bed as an old man or an old woman you'll breathe your last but you'll be just as lost hell will be just as hot and all that happened was you just learned how to make it without God Cain Cain was so hard he was somebody said last night when I mentioned Cain and Abel the first night they said I thought she was going to preach about 
Cain the cool and apostolic Abel. I love to preach about those two. Abel who did right and was accepted. Cain the smart aleck. Cain the guy that always did it his way. He was so tough. When God came down after he had killed his brother, he even smarted off to God. Where is your brother? Cain mouthed off to the Lord. What am I a babysitter? Am I my brother's keeper? But God said, I know where your brother is. I know what you've done. And he began to pronounce judgment on Cain. He said, you're going to be a fugitive. You're going to be a vagabond. You're going to be dri uh, driven out from your family. Driven out from my presence. You're going to live the rest of your days. An outcast. Cain, the cigarette fell from his lips. That smirk was wiped away. Tears began to roll down his face. He stood before God and said, my punishment is more that I can bear. Everybody I meet will want to kill me. God said, oh no, Cain, you're going to live. I'm going to mark you. Nobody's going to touch you. I want you to live. I don't want you to die. And Cain lived eastward of Eden in the land of Nod. He lived. Read the Bible record. What happened to Cain? Did he live a life of remorse? Did he become a hermit living in a cave? Oh no. He married. He had children. He built cities. He established himself. What am I saying? saying life went on for Cain somewhere, somehow he learned how to live without God and you are on your way and one of these nights you're going to graduate you're going to get your diploma and you're going to walk out for the last time and forever be beyond the reach of the church doesn't happen in a day it's a long, slow process. I don't know. I don't know how it can be. I used to sing when I was a teenager in a little quartet. We weren't very good, but oh, we loved the Lord. We'd gather and we'd practice for hours. Didn't have a whole lot to do with how well we sung, but man, we, we'd feel the Lord. I can remember times when we shouted, just teenage boys, nobody in the church but us, practicing, singing. There was four of us. Me, my brother, Larry, Gilbert, Donald. We sang our hearts out. We sang at a few churches around, not because we were good, but because... I don't know, we just put our hearts in it. As I look back on it now, just 15, 14, 15, 16 years old, I realize people got a kick out of the fact that there was something shining in our faces. We loved God. We really loved Him. We really did. We were all close friends. Whenever we're together, did everything. The time, of course, began to make changes. Larry went off to college. Gilbert got involved. I'm sorry, Donald got involved in high school. Got on the football team. He was he was severely injured in a, a kickoff play. He still walks funny. He's not well yet. Larry went on to become a preacher as I did. Gilbert went off to college on scholarship. Donald got a job and got married. 
soon Gilbert got married. Then Larry. Before long I got married. Gilbert's marriage dissolved. Donald's collapsed. Larry's backslidden. I try to talk to him about the Lord. Make fun of you. You don't have time for God. Going back to school now. Going to be a CPA. Make good money. I guess. He's got two kids. Lives in a nice home. Donald's remarried. Got a couple of kids. He's kind of in and out of the church. Just drifting along at the edges. Last time I talked with Gilbert, he admitted to me that he had a call of God on his life. But he looked at me and with a smug attitude, he said, but you know, I'm well educated. I've got a logical mind. And it's just hard for someone of my education and logic to preach Pentecostal gospel. I don't know why I made it. I'm no different than they are. They loved God just like I did. But somewhere, something and they drifted and drifted. And now, I'm afraid they've learned how to make it. They've just learned how to do it. You can learn to live without God, but I don't believe you'll ever really be happy. And I know one thing. You can learn to live without Him. But you'll never learn to die without I don't really know <clears throat> why I feel just like I feel. As far as I knew, be pretty much the same crowd here tonight that we've had the other nights. Somehow I felt a strong need to come to this pulpit tonight and to warn somebody sitting in this congregation. I didn't know you was going to be here. Don't know you now. Don't even know who I'm talking to. Don't have any idea, but I've come to warn you. There's someone here has drifted almost out of reach. Somebody said, but I'm still young. That doesn't really matter. It may take years for some people and only months for others. I know people that only had one chance to pray and died without taking that chance. But I really believe, I really feel impressed of the Holy Ghost to warn you by asking you right now as heads are bowed and eyes are closed to evaluate your feelings in this service. To be honest with yourself for just the next few moments. How do you feel?
How hard have you gotten? And I feel like if you'll be honest, you'll have to admit to yourself that it doesn't move you like it once did. It doesn't touch you like it did just a few months, a couple of years ago. There was a time when like a child you were easily stirred. Now, though still young, it just doesn't do it like it did. And I'm here to warn you that that's not your growing sophistication. That's not your intelligence being developed. That's not your education progressing. It's simply that you're learning to block out conviction. You're learning. You're approaching that place of learning how to live without God. Now you don't lay in your bed and stare up into the darkness and think about the rapture and about hell. It doesn't cross your mind as much as it used to. It has to be a really pretty good service before you're touched. Before you do anything at all. You know what's happening? Don't you understand what's taking place? You're learning. You're learning how to make it. Without God. I also feel led to ask you to be honest with yourself. And investigate your resentment level. Your resentment against parents. Preacher. Church. And you won't want to admit it. But even against God. It's higher now than it ever has been. A bitterness is creeping into your soul that's turning it to ice. And I believe that I have been led to tell you one more thing tonight. If you feel anything at all, you ought to pray. If there's anything left, Because you're just about to graduate. I don't know how many more sermons you've got. How many more altar appeals are left. And then you might sit on the pew, but you won't feel the need. And you'll be gone. Gone. To live out a life without God and to die a death without God and spend an eternity without God. His heads are bowed and eyes remain closed and you're honest with yourself. If you're not saved, if you're not what you should be in God, you might even claim the Holy Ghost. You may have it, but you've just allowed yourself to grow cold 
and you feel the least inkling of conviction tonight, I plead with you. Come and pray. Please come and pray. Let me tell you something else. This doesn't sound too orthodox, and I hope I'm not out of the line. But the way I feel tonight, if you don't even intend to do right, I still wish you'd come and pray tonight. Even if you know you're going to get up from the altar and go on back and do the same things, the way I feel tonight, I wish you'd still come and pray. I don't want to see you walk out on God again. I don't want to see you let another service slip through your fingers. I don't want to see you grow harder and harder. Because one of these nights, it's going to be the last night. And I feel in my heart, you don't have long. As we all stand, I want you to step out right now. The church's eyes remain closed. We begin to pray and seek the Lord. If you feel anything at all, I want you to step out. I mean, if there's any need, I don't care who you are, but if you feel a need, no matter how small or insignificant, please, if you feel a need to pray, it's time to pray. It's time to come now. Do it now. Do it now. Do it now. Don't let this sermon get by you. It's a cry in the wilderness. It's a weak voice from the distance. Almost you can't hear me. My hand is reaching, but you're almost too far out. Please, please, if you feel anything, won't you come? Won't you come now, tonight, make a move now, quickly now? Don't wait. Please don't wait. In Jesus' name. In the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord. Can satisfy your soul. Hallelujah. And only He can take your heart and make it whole He'll give you peace you never knew love and joy He'll give you heaven too but only Jesus can really satisfy your soul only Jesus can really satisfy your soul why don't you make it count tonight why don't you make it count just coming down here isn't really enough you know just kneeling at the uh, uh, pew isn't really enough somehow you've got to make it count You've got to make it change you. You've got to touch him tonight. Oh, Jesus. Don't let me learn how to make it without you. Don't let me forget how desperately I need you every day. Don't let me learn to leave you out of my life. Break this old habit, Lord. Teach me I need you. I need you. I need you. I need you. Jesus. 
Aleluia. 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 Jesus name. Saints of God, I wish you'd reach over and begin to pray one for another right now. If there's someone near you that doesn't know the Lord, I I wish you'd get with them and begin to pray. If there's a young person near you, I wish you'd pray with them. I wish you'd put your hand on their shoulder. I wish you'd tell them the Lord wants to bless them. Would you do that now? Saints, would you reach around, begin to pray? In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God. Amen, 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 amen. I said only Jesus will ever satisfy your soul. Oh, yes. My God, my God. Only He can take a life and make it whole. He'll give you peace you never knew. Love and joy and heaven too. But only Jesus can satisfy your soul only Jesus will ever satisfy your soul hallelujah oh hallelujah hallelujah can take your life and make you whole don't you know he'll give you peace that you never knew love and joy and he'll give you heaven too but only Jesus will ever satisfy your soul oh God pray for him pray for him in the name of Jesus oh my God Hallelujah. 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 My God, my God, my God, my God, my God. Jesus.